Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. Nice to be here today. We're going to be talking a little bit about really the state of play in cancer genetic testing. Where are we? Uh, Where should we be? And because I have here today with me Heather Hampel, um, I'm going to take advantage of her long experience in this field to ask her to look back a little bit on where we came from and to look forward a little bit uh, for uh, to speculate somewhat on where's the field of cancer counseling going? Like, what will life be like for cancer counselors in the next 10 years? Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. So Heather is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and Associate Director of the Division of Human Genetics at the Ohio State <laughs> University. That's right. That's right. And uh, more importantly, from our point of view, Heather is one of the pioneer genetic counselors in the realm of cancer counseling and someone who's very often out front talking about, um, talking about particularly about Lynch syndrome, her patients, where we should be. Uh, representing genetic counselors and genetic counseling in a number of ways, including uh, as the past president of ABGC and as the PI of the Ohio Colorectal Cancer Prevention, a statewide study to identify patients with hereditary cancer syndromes and provide cascade testing to their at-risk family members. So, Heather, you've been leading the charge for quite a while on Lynch syndrome screening. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think, you know, I basically spent the last 23 years, I think, working on uh, Lynch syndrome, and I've only been a genetic counselor for 25. So most of my career has been devoted to uh, Lynch syndrome and universal tumor screening for Lynch syndrome. And so with that perspective, right, so Lynch syndrome, Lynch syndrome is one of the great simple wins in cancer screening. There are very few wins. I agree. Straight out wins in cancer screening, right? So you, you don't, I don't need to tell them, you, t- you, you say why. So I think the reason it has been such a win is that people don't realize that colon cancer is really completely preventable through colonoscopy. You know, no one likes a colonoscopy. No one likes to talk about a colonoscopy. But when you go through with that camera on the scope and see any polyps, you can remove them before they become a cancer. With every other screening test, like a mammogram for breast cancer or a PSA for prostate cancer, you're really only hoping to catch a cancer while it's small. You can't prevent it in the first place uh, with the screening test. So um, it really makes uh, Lynch syndrome uniquely positioned that if we can identify individuals who have this very, very high risk for colorectal and several other cancers, but the main one is colorectal, that we can start their colonoscopies earlier and do them more frequently and keep them from getting colon cancer in the first place. Of course, the million-dollar question is how do we get everybody diagnosed, right, because that it's, it's completely underdiagnosed. Do you have um, numbers on that? Yeah, so they are estimating right now, and this looks to be pretty accurate from some of the population-based studies going on, 
that somewhere around one in 279 individuals in the general public has Lynch syndrome, which is unbelievably common for a high penetrant autosomal dominant condition, as the listeners who work in genetics will realize. And so that um, is probably just just a, a little bit, a smidge less common than the more well-known hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. So they're, they're about equal prevalence. Lynch syndrome probably just slightly less common. And um, the trouble is that, you know, I think we're doing a fairly good job educating the public and healthcare providers about hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome. And, you know, a lot of the credit for that goes, has to go to Angelina Jolie and her op-ed pieces about having a BRCA mutation herself. Um, but we've really not scratched the surface in terms of educating the general public and the healthcare providers about Lynch syndrome. And as a result, current estimates are that probably 90 to 95% of people with Lynch syndrome are not aware of their diagnosis. That's actually a stunning uh, number. That's really a stunning I, number. Um, I agree. Because the majority of those people would have some family history, right? It's an autosomal so. dominant, right? Right, right. And, and highly penetrant for the most part. But it turns out two of the Lynch syndrome genes, MSH6 and PMS2, are more common and lower penetrant. So the relative risk for colon cancer with those two genes is probably two or three. So you're two or three times more likely to get colon cancer than somebody without Lynch syndrome. And so those families aren't always as striking. And I think those are the ones perhaps that are, I mean, but of course with 90 to 95%, it's all, it's just being under, grossly underdiagnosed across the board. But I, I would say the MSH6 and PMS2 families may not be as striking, and so they can fly a little bit more under the radar and not be detected as easily. You know, you, major, you bring this you, up. You bring this up, this point, that it's highly penetrant for an autosomal dominant. Uh, I'm sorry, that it's highly, uh, uh, there's a high incidence for an autosomal dominant with high penetrance. Those things are supposed to be, to some extent, you get rid of themselves. Uh, is it simply because it's a, a later killer? Why, why, do you have a thought as to why it's so common in the population? I, I think you're right. I think it didn't affect childbearing. Um, most of the cancers, they are young, um, but they're after childbearing. And so I think that there was no reproductive consequences from having Lynch syndrome. So it's been able to, it, it hasn't um, died out in the way that a lot of highly penetrant genetic syndromes would, where they affect reproductive fitness. So I, th I think that's probably why. Um, it's but, still, but it's still kind of an interesting think, number, because they say that, um, <laughs> you know, when you look at population genetics, uh, there's some evidence that uh, to a grandparent effect. In other words, even if it doesn't affect your fitness, like when you look at a community, that uh, community ability to propagate itself is, is helped by having people who survive to grandparent age, which, by the way, I'm very cheered about because I'm expecting my first grandchild <laughs> in 2021. So I'm like, I'm like all grandma I love power. That. Yeah. Well, it does, it does take a village for us. So it does. Know, grandparents are very important. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we don't know why. There's no heterozygote. There's no No, but I but I agree and I think what you're getting at here, which is what I strongly believe, is that this is a huge public health problem. And it's it's why the CDC is now calling Lynch syndrome hereditary breast ovarian cancer, 
syndrome, and then familial hypercholesterolemia, which we haven't talked about, but it's the uh, 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 common hereditary form of high cholesterol that runs in families. Those three have been denoted this tier one disease uh, connotation from the CDC, which indicates that they're frequent, uh, that they are easy to test for, and that they're actionable. There's something you can do about it if you know somebody has one of those conditions that can change the outcomes for the better. And the data on population testing for those three conditions is pouring out this year. There's been three or four publications looking at uh, the UK Biobank, Healthy Nevada Project, uh, the the Geisinger MyCode Project, where just uh, adults were offered genetic testing for those three tier one conditions. And when you test for the three together, it's reproducibly coming out that around one in 75 individuals has one of those three conditions. Yeah. And I've seen some numbers along. It's, it's, it's very, yeah, it's very high between better, better than 2% of populations tested coming up from one of those three conditions. Yes. Extremely high. And the interesting thing uh, that I hadn't thought about because I haven't worked in prenatal in my whole career, but um, I watched a talk from uh, Mike Murray at Geisinger and when he was at Geisinger and he said, you know, here we have one in 75 in the general population for one of these tier one conditions. And the positive rate for newborn screening in this country, it of course varies depending on how many diseases, but runs around one in 800. So that really stopped and made me think like, you know, what are we doing to get these individuals diagnosed and help keep them from getting cancer or heart disease in the case of familial hypercholesterolemia? Are we doing enough? Yeah, it's I don't a think great, so. It's a great question. So, so this leads quite. So this, I was going to ask you first, and I did about the state of where we are in regard screening, and what you're saying is we are not doing well. When you talk about Correct. ninety to ninety-five percent of people <laughs> undiagnosed, we're not doing well. And and um, we are not. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you this: What would the perfect screening program look like? Like in your mind. Would it be general population screening? Would everybody simply get screened for Lynch syndrome and that would be the best outcome? Are we ready to do that? And, and when? Two questions. So that's a very good question. And I'm going to say, yes, that probably is the best way. And no, we're probably not ready. <laughs> but I think we are headed in that direction. So, And this is right on what I've spent my career doing. So I, I often talk about, Laura, that um, genetic counseling comes from a, a historically fairly passive approach where we sit in our office and uh, hope that somebody takes a family history, recognizes something's wrong, refers the patient. We hope the patient then actually makes an appointment, shows up, gets their risk assessment, genetic counseling from us, and genetic testing, and we can make the diagnosis. That is a very, very good way, probably, to deal with rare genetic conditions. It's probably a very ineffective way to diagnose something as common as Lynch syndrome, HBOC, and familial hypercholesterolemia. So I then shifted and spent the last 20 years working on universal tumor screening for Lynch syndrome. So now somebody who gets colon or endometrial cancer gets screened at the time of diagnosis in the pathology department without regard to family history or age for Lynch syndrome. 
Uh, so that's a step forward. It's a step in the right direction. It's a more active approach for screening for patients for Lynch syndrome. But the problem is somebody has to get cancer, right? Right. I remember when I first started advocating for this, one of the patient advocacy groups <laughs> was behind my back calling it the sacrificial lamb approach because <laughs> someone had to get a cancer. And I was so deeply wounded by this. And um, I did talk to some colleagues who said, well, Heather, it's better than family history to get referred based on family history. There's got to be three, four, five people with cancer. So, you know, it's now down to one. That's an improvement. But it's, you know, it's not, it, it would be better if we could diagnose healthy adults before they got a cancer, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the trouble is there's not a capture point like there is at the newborn screening point. Like where what do all 18 to 25 year olds do? That's sort of like, do they all go to the doctor at a certain time? No. In fact, that's probably the age group, the least likely to go to the doctor. Um, you probably have a chance at getting at females through their OBGYN. Um, but there's just not a sort of a capture point to introduce testing in the general public in that age group, which is probably the ideal age group. Um, you know, Mary Claire King talked about testing the general public for hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome in her Lasker Award talk. And she had um, really advocated for 30, I think it was 30 or 35-year-old women. 30. And for hereditary, was it 30? Yeah. yeah. And it was hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome only. So I had a lot of, I mean, I think it's the right idea. We're, every, we're all just trying here, right? But the, the problems with that are, first of all, if you're positive for a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, you actually start your MRIs at 25, so that's five years too late. Second of all, half of the affected people are men, not women, and that only addresses the females. And third, why do we only pick hereditary breast ovarian cancer when Lynch syndrome and familial hypercholesterolemia are essentially equally common and, and that was to be, to be fair to be fair to our hero mary claire that was yes, a few years course. ago uh oh, and, and, it was and i ahead of her time yes and i kind of doubt yeah. that was maybe six seven years ago i kind of doubt um that anyone would advocate for going to the expense of universal population screening and not doing a wider panel. There's good reason to suggest that you wouldn't do the widest panel, right? Uh, too many. I agree. And, and, where, and where you stop is a very tricky question, right? Yeah, but I agree with you. Like, it's more right. than one disease. So if your panel's too wide, <laughs> if your panel's too wide, if you have too many genes on that panel, you're picking up a lot of stuff that it isn't clear what advice to give people. Uh, and it isn't simple. And especially in families where we don't have family history, where there isn't concern, you're sort of throwing this out. Uh, if you start telling people things that you're like, well, we have this positive finding on the test, but we don't really think you need to do anything, it dilutes the whole message, right? And now absolutely, you might be people absolutely. saying just like, uh, everybody test positive yeah. on that stupid test, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. So we need to Correct. keep it to right. the ones where it's like, oh, if you tested positive on this, you should be paying attention. Yeah, this means something. There's something you can do. We all agree on what you should do, 100%. And, and to that end, I believe she specifically said that we should not report out variants of uncertain significance, which I think is probably right in a population screening approach. 
Um, but, you know, some people get nervous about that. Of course, if it would ever get reclassified as pathogenic, you'd have to recontact the patient. But the vast majority of these variants of uncertain significance. Get Heather, I don't think of course and recontact ever belong <laughs> in the same sentence. Because <laughs> well, I, I would put it this one. Of course, done, that's it? not going to happen. <laughs> Oh, so true. I mean, it's really much more of a challenge. And, and I can't even imagine when you're working with, you know, sort of if we were working with the kind of the my preferred age group, the 18 to 25 year olds who are moving constantly, right? Like, how do you even find them to recontact them? It's a great Listen, point. Even if you're their freaking, I can't say, even if you're their freaking <laughs> their mother, even if you're their mother, you cannot always contact 18 to 25 year olds. mother of an 18 year old, I can confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this is That's really a very interesting. Good point. So, you're saying that medically, uh, first of all, you're making two really excellent points. One, one, one is that uh, we are at a point where we know enough about some of these hereditary cancer syndromes, speaking specifically of hereditary breast ovarian cancer, um, BRCA1 and 2, and Lynch syndrome, where we know enough that it makes a lot of sense to talk about population screening if you could do it well. And the optimal group would be 18 to 25s. But 18 to 25s are a terrible group from a public health standpoint yeah. to try and contact. Yeah. So do you go later exactly. or do you go earlier? And I think this is really well, so interesting because, of course, I there's a lot of you. history against going earlier, but maybe it makes <laughs> well, sense. Well, don't get me started. I agree with you, Laura. And so I have actually several times uh, commented to my friends who work in the FH world that it is a no-brainer to try and get familial hypercholesterolemia added to the newborn screening programs, in my opinion. They're gonna, they, they start treatment around age 9 or 10 with lipid-lowering medications. And so it's a childhood onset, or at least the therapy starts in childhood. And so I think that one is an easier sell. But we do have a little bit, we're going to get a lot of pushback if we would try to consider adding hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome or Lynch syndrome into the newborn screening. I, I do want now, to get you started. Do you think we should? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm so close to thinking we should, and I will tell you why. As you know, both of these conditions have an autosomal recessive form. Uh, for BRCA1 and 2 mutations, if you inherit two of them, you have the much more severe childhood onset condition, Fanconi anemia. And for Lynch syndrome, if you inherit two mutations in the same Lynch syndrome gene, you have the much more severe childhood onset constitutional mismatch repair deficiency. So they do have a recessive form that I bet, Laura, and I haven't run the numbers, but I bet it's probably more common than some of the rare metabolic diseases like maple syrup urine disease that are included on the newborn screening panels. Oh, I can do those and numbers in my other, head. They absolutely are. Can you? Yeah. They are. I mean, okay, I, I right. can't do real so, numbers in my right? head, but I can yeah. do orders of the magnitude. Ballpark, right. It's got to be more common, right? So this yeah. has been, I, I think about these things all the time. And you think also, you know, people say, well, who's going to remember to tell these babies when they're adults? Well, I, that's, you know, that is a challenge, but think about their parents. So they had to get it from mom or dad, who is the perfect age, because people tend to be childbearing in their 20s and 30s, and that, you may save their mom or dad. Yeah, I don't so think that's I actually a question a at all, who will remember to tell them. If you're doing proper follow-up and cascade screening in the family, there's going to be lots of people 
that now know they I, have Lynch you're syndrome. Right. If it comes, you're right. It's the culture. The family knows and the family is responsible. Yeah. I, that, I've heard a lot of pushback on that. Like, you know, what's the, is the pediatrician supposed to keep track of this? Well, fine. I mean, he's going to follow them till they're 18 and, and can remind them along the way that once they had adulthood. But I, I think that's very intriguing and it's probably the only effective way of doing population screening for these disorders because they're, you will never get 100% of people at any other point. I can't think of a way to get 100% of people. So this at every is really, point. really interesting to me. And you bring up something with these recessive qualities of both conditions, which I hadn't considered. Right. You could also contemplate yeah, putting them on carrier that. screening panels. I don't think they're on any carrier screening panals. I don't know maybe, they are maybe maybe I maybe I maybe the maybe the semaphore yeah. panel I don't know I don't know semaphore yeah. is pretty huge um, yeah I'd have to go and check yeah, but I'd... never occurred to me that's another thing you could consider putting them on carrier screening absolutely. panels absolutely not as effective at reaching everybody as newborn screening right exactly but so so then I people and, and the other thing which we haven't talked about, which we should talk about is, you know, I, I, I started my career at Memorial Sloan Kettering and I think what they are doing with the Memorial Sloan Kettering impact program is phenomenal. Right. And I think Wait, 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 you're gonna have to back up you, and say what they are doing yeah. with the Yeah. yeah. I will. And, and, you know, you ask me what's happening now, what's going to be happening in 25 years. Like, I think that in the short term, this is going to be happening soon. So they offer tumor testing to every single cancer patient diagnosed at Memorial Sloan Kettering, regardless of stage, age of diagnosis. And then optional germline genetic testing for panels of cancer genes to those same patients. So, um, you know, the last three years at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, it has been the Memorial Sloan Kettering show because they now have data for every single cancer about the prevalence of germline mutations in cancer susceptibility genes. Uh, they know what percent of those are actionable and can lead to therapeutic changes for the patient, which is, you know, really, I think, also causing a big shift in acceptance of early uh, genetic testing for cancer patients. Because when it was just for the family, which is what we all love in the genetics world, that wasn't sort of enough. Um, but when it started affecting treatment, then we perked up the oncologist ears. And now it's something that I, you know, we're getting a lot of pressure. It needs to be offered. It needs to be offered early because it can affect the patient's treatment. And um, this is slightly different than what I talked about earlier when I talked about my work on universal tumor screening for Lynch syndrome, because what I do or have been doing historically is checking for a characteristic in the tumor that tells you whether the patient's more or less likely to have Lynch syndrome. It does not test for any other condition. And what they're doing is offering an optional germline panel, which would test for, you know, hundreds of cancer genes to find any hereditary cancer syndrome, including Lynch syndrome. So it's broader than what I've been doing. Um, and it's being offered to everyone. Still, you would have the, uh, you know, the whole argument about the sacrificial lamb approach because someone had to get cancer. But I have always, you know, countered that at least from that individual the rest of the family gets the benefit of cascade testing, and hopefully the children, brothers, sisters can be kept from getting cancer in the first place. And so I think that this is something, you know, I think cost has been the biggest um, barrier for that, um, but you're starting to see it already creep in with um, 
what they'll call mainstreaming testing programs. So uh, mainstreaming is the the nice way of saying that a, a genetic counseling group is 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 willing to give up full pretest genetic counseling before the testing, and instead we train uh, the NPs, uh, nurses, or oncologists who see that patient at the time of diagnosis to get a pretest informed consent. Right? They're not getting a they're not doing a full genetic counseling session, but they're getting a, an informed consent. And is this then on, is this on, on cancer patients or also on their relatives? Yes. This has so far been on cancer patients. So we're, for example, doing it for our pancreatic cancer patients at Ohio State, and I'll tell you why. But it, it, since last September, every single pancreatic cancer patient at OSU is offered germline genetic testing from the oncology group. And they get the informed consent. We have a little video they play to make sure that the content that we want to be delivered is getting delivered so that they can give an informed consent. They get a germline gene test. I... Um, manage every test, so I'm copied on every test, and all of the positives are then referred for full post-test genetic counseling. And I have to tell you, I love it, but I have had colleagues who were like, well, why don't we just hire more genetic counselors, Heather? And I said, so we're just going to sit genetic counselors around all day in case a pancreatic cancer patient happens to come in and they can do a full pretest genetic counseling appointment. So the trouble was, you know, a couple of years ago, the NCCN recommended that all pancreatic cancer patients should be offered germline genetic testing at the time of diagnosis. And we were struggling to do that because our wait time for GI cancer genetics at that time was six months. And the prognosis for pancreatic cancer is not good. Um, so we had patients literally die before they could get in for an appointment with genetics, which is that's not a, acceptable. That's a, bad, that's a bad outcome. That's a bad outcome. Yeah. The other thing is I have to tell you, spending an hour with a patient talking about genes and chromosomes and the 8.2% chance that they'll test likely, test positive, felt to me personally like I was stealing an hour of the life they had remaining. You know, these people have pancreatic cancer, and there's not a lot of time left. And 92% of them were going to test negative. Well, also, the, the, and it, anybody who's already a cancer patient, a lot of our profound concerns right, right. about what we need right. to get we're not across. not going to give them any worse news. Right, exactly. Right. We're not going to give them are, any are worse completely news the news they already got. Because we're going to say to them things like, Correct. if you test negative, you still have a concern. I'm like, they know. They know. They do know. They, have they know firsthand. Yeah. Exactly. I agree with that completely. And the other thing is, you know, there's the people who sort of felt like, oh, well, you're giving our job away. Well, not really. So think about this. If we test 10 times more people than we would have and 10% are positive, I'm seeing the same number of people, but I'm seeing the people I need to see because they're positive. They have a hereditary cancer syndrome. I need to explain to them and their family members what their risks are. I need to do cascade testing. And it's, you know, at that it's the operating at the top of my scope for the patients who need me the most. Right. And I so think I, pe people used to worry a lot about the negatives that they were, you know, were missing something, but with a big panel, what, what could I offer a negative that hasn't been done? Well, I guess you know, the only doctors, thing is, um, if you're talking about family members and not about people with cancer, um, yeah. then you'd want to, then you'd want to, if they test negative, be sure they get the message that that doesn't mean they have zero cancer risk, right? So that's important. That's really important yes. to understand residual risk. I, and I, 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 I think agree. that... I also think their doctors should know that and right. be able to 
convey well, that to them. They should. Do they? But, but they do should. They, they should. We don't know. But but <laughs> yeah, but, right. but 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 I you know I mean I have said for years that uh, everything we can do to improve testing minus pretest counseling is good because pretest counseling is going the way of the dinosaurs. And you just have to be realistic about that, except in very specific instances, you know, if we're talking about certain yeah. neurological conditions and so on. But, but in general, the idea that we're going to be able to scale up genetic testing across the board, across disciplines, and maintain long pretest counseling sessions is so entirely unrealistic. It's a choice. Yep. And 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 yep. the choice is being made. It's not our choice either. The choice is being made without us. It is going forward. Right. Um, right. So, so why don't we? Why don't we adapt? Right. And leave. but how much of this? Right. So you you said this. I, I want you to, to to give us a little perspective from someone who's been in the field essentially since the inception of counter counseling as a real standalone yeah. field. <laughs> yeah. How much of this sense of you're giving away our jobs is this reflexive, old? response doesn't really make sense in the current like how much has that changed like like did there must have been a point where it was really a fight to say this is a genetic counselor's job but aren't we past that i i feel like we are but i think you're right there's still um you know depending on when you're you're trained and you're right we had to fight so long for our turf to, to defend our turf and to 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 make the definition of what we are and what we contribute that it feels hard to let some of that go. Um, but you you just have to step back from it and think of the sheer numbers like you just outlined. I mean, it's just untenable, the current service delivery model, and we need to change. And it, it doesn't have to be bad. Like we, you know, I think what we've learned in sort of when the, geneticists kind of wash their hands of the cancer world um, for, and now you see very, very few board certified geneticists working in cancer that this is a turning point for genetic counselors of a similar magnitude. You know, we, if we still and have proven that we're the experts, then we're going to be plenty busy seeing all of the positives because orders of magnitude, more people will be tested than have been tested currently. I will tell you what happened in the first nine months of our mainstreaming project for pancreatic cancer. In the first nine months, 121 pancreatic cancer patients got genetic testing. I pulled the data from our clinic. In the prior five years, we had seen 119 patients with pancreatic cancer. So in nine wow. months, we tested essentially the same number, two more, people with pancreatic cancer using oncology as the, you know, pre-test informed consent component than we had in the five years prior. Wow. And to me, it, it's just very obvious that, I mean, that we have to agree was a good outcome. 15% of tested positive. It's only about 8.5 for moderate and high penetrance genes. Um, the rest are sort of recessive or low penetrance, uh, so it's not typically as clinically relevant, the other sort of 7%. But 
Um, it's, we're, we're getting positives. We're seeing them for post-test genetic counseling, and they love the program, and they're very grateful that they had the opportunity to be tested. One of the things about cancer that counseling that's really interesting is the way it has been at the cutting edge for as long as I've been in this field. So it's very much a model for other specialty areas coming up behind. And and one of the ways in which I'm interested in it right now as a model is that a part of our role has always been to fill in for the lack of genetics education in the training of medical providers. that They don't know what to ask. So now... There's been a ton of cancer, a ton of genetic testing in oncology for quite a while. What what changes do you see in the oncologists? Are are they better able I, to order tests, interpret tests, and so on? I think so. I think they are. Um, and, and it certainly it starts at the academic institutions and then moves its way into the com- community hospitals and cancer um, programs. But it. Absolutely, they've had to, right? Because now almost every cancer patient gets some genetic testing on their tumor that helps decide their therapy. And so they've had to learn it um, to keep up with their own area of practice now that it has these therapeutic consequences. And so that has helped, I think, elevate their knowledge of genetics and, um, you know, w- when they're trying to find um, an actionable therapeutic target, they really you know, will exhaust any means to figure out if a patient might benefit. I mean, the immunotherapy story is, is a great story. Same with Lemparza and the PARP inhibitors. But, um, you know, the outcomes that you see are miraculous. I mean, literally, uh, one of the um, old medical oncologists I worked for described it as the Lazarus effect. We had a 27-year-old with Lynch syndrome and stage 4 colon cancer who all standard therapies had not worked for, and she was getting discharged to hospice. And we enrolled her on one of the very early immunotherapy trials, and he literally described that she had bulky tumor in her chest and neck. And he watched it disappear within weeks of her starting the immunotherapy. And when it works, it is so, so dramatic. She is now six years out, no evidence of disease. She had been a dancer before. She's dancing again. When it works, it's amazing. And and when an oncologist has seen that work, they don't want to miss a single patient who could potentially benefit, right? And so whether it's because they were born with a mutation in a mismatch repair gene and have Lynch syndrome, whether they acquired mutations in their tumor during their life in their mismatch repair genes or methylation as they aged, they don't care how they became microsatellite unstable. They just want to know if they are because those patients are the patients that benefit from immunotherapy. And so they'll turn over any leaf, whether it's, you know, they'll test the tumor. If you don't find it in the tumor, you check the germline. And we've seen this in the ovarian world. Very, The ovarian world has been early adopters because they know that if ovarian cancers have BRCA mutations, they benefit from PARP inhibitors, and they do paired testing. They test the tumor to see if there's acquired mutations. They test the germline to see if there were inherited mutations. And if that all fails, they still check for a 
uh, signature in the tumor that might mean that the patient would benefit from immunotherapy because we know we don't know everything yet. And you don't want to miss a single patient that would benefit from one of these targeted therapies because when it works, it works. Wow. And so, yes, they, 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 they've come a long way, um, you know, in some specialties more than others. Um, you know, if, if the tumor type they work with has a lot of genetic uh, biomarkers for therapy, then they, they usually are, are pretty well versed about genetics and, and understand the germline and are, are And now you have really coming excited. in the, the cell-free testing. Um, yes, right. Which it's liquid which biopsies. Is, <laughs> right, right. Liquid biopsies. Um, now, let me be clear, because I always think it's really important when you talk about liquid biopsies that you uh, differentiate between using them in one of three groups, using them in cancer patients to talk about what changes are exactly taking place in a tumor tissue or where the tissue of origin is, or whether you're using it in people who've had cancer to try and identify recurrence, whether you're using it in general population, because yes, I, yes. because those All first two uses, exciting. those first two uses are <laughs> slam dunks, right? Yes, yes. The third, yes, is, the third is, is unproven. Yeah, <laughs> that's so, correct. But they're all very exciting. They're all very exciting. Oh, and I, I'm very excited about the first two. The the, the third one, I'm, yeah. um, put me, color me highly skeptical. <laughs> but um, well, if you would have told me, Laura, that you could do non-invasive prenatal testing back in 1995 when I was a little second-year student at Sarah Lawrence <laughs> College, I would have told you you were crazy, and it would never work. And you, there was you know no what, Heather? Thing. You know what, Heather? Like it's it's a thing now. <laughs> Uh, every, every so often, it's rare, but it's a thing that somebody does cell-free fetal DNA testing uh, and discovers uh, during their pregnancy that, that they have cancer. And and I'm waiting. Yeah, it will I've happen. One of these days, they're yeah. going to be doing cell-free fetal, cell-free DNA testing on a cancer patient and discover that she's pregnant because um, cause oh, it yeah, goes both ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that. Yes, that, that will absolutely happen. Yeah. One of the saddest cases I've counseled was a patient who had uh, cancer detected on um, cell-free DNA during her pregnancy for non-invasive prenatal testing. And it was a sad story. Well, I mean, young, it's young. very hard, right? Because it's not validated for that purpose. And yeah, right. And you often don't know what the cancer is, just that there is one. Well, there's an argument to be made that the labs, even though the person at the lab looks at the result and says, I think this is cancer, it's hard for them to know what to report out. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. In fact, in this case, I don't think they knew that it was it was a triploidy, but the the fetus looks fine on ultrasound. And so they all just kind of blew it off. Um, and then in her open C-section, they saw widely disseminated uh, cancer in liver meds, et cetera. Um, and, and lo and behold, when you pull the original paper, there was another triploidy that was, a, I think, also a rectal cancer. Um, so they didn't know that that's what they had found until the cancer was detected at delivery. She actually passed away about four months later um, with That's leaving the newborn behind it. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, it was. It was. Well, they're going to have to they're going to yeah. have to not on, they're going to have to find some way to validate these oddball findings. Um, yeah. Because sure. right now it's it's an open question as to what are the ethical Yeah. Um, yeah. The but I agree with you the first two approaches. It out. 
There are um, so many cancer patients where they can't do surgery or biopsy the tumor and giving them an option uh, using blood is, is really important. And then this idea of monitoring for recurrence is, uh, is very, um, you know, exciting too, because uh, if you could catch that recurrence earlier and get treatment going earlier, but, you know, if we wait till it's causing symptoms or visible on a scan, it's pretty advanced, but you can detect molecular levels of recurrence much, much earlier. You know, I have a question. I have a question for you. I hadn't, I have a friend. I had a friend. It's a bit of a heartbreak for me. I had a friend mm-hmm. who was BRCA1 positive, uh, had mastectomies, had ophorectomies and so on, got cancer in the residual tissue. And she uh, tragically uh, died of that cancer it was pretty late stage when it was found, um, in part because it's very hard to do any screening on somebody who's had mastectomies and had ophorectomies. Um, yeah. Could liquid biopsy have worked for her? Like, could you follow you know, up these BRCA positive right? patients with liquid biopsy? Well, that, that's, you know, one of my first hopes for it, you know, n- not necessarily the general population where you're going to have so many false positives, but in our high-risk individuals who have such a high a priori risk of getting a cancer could be extremely useful. It could widen the colonoscopy intervals for Lynch syndrome patients by allowing an interval screen that's non-invasive. Yes, I think it definitely has a place in our high-risk patients that um, after, as you mentioned, the risk-reducing mastectomy and oophorectomy so hard to screen. Would this be a nice thing to add? Uh, and could could it, you know, help us delay risk-reducing surgeries or widen intervals between Lynch syndrome uh, colonoscopies because you have a non-invasive tool to screen in the interim? I, th- I think it's got a lot of potential. Um, but of course, no one's going to develop it for that small population. So they they want to develop it for the general public where they could make millions. Yeah, that's their... <laughs> I mean, they literally <laughs> right. called the company Grail. Like, it's... That's... that's <laughs> it's just... I never get over that. Um, well, and they aren't the only ones working on this. So. No, no, no. And, and, and Foundation Medicine just got approved the first of these tests for... The, the cancer population, uh, and and I wanted to ask you what you saw, if any, of a genetic counseling role interacting with those tests. So you know, we for a while at OSU before um, we would do tumor uh, screening with one of the docs, we're actually doing a family history and a little you know sort of pretest counseling, an abbreviated one. It it is it was. So rare to find something in the germline on the tumor test. It again, just back to your your statement earlier, just is not tenable to do any kind of pretest genetic counseling, in my opinion, before most of these tumor tests. I do think that um, patients need to be aware that incidental germline findings can be found, um, and we do have a research study that we've just submitted for funding. Where you know it, maybe we would introduce some sort of video. Um, so that we can make sure that patients know that this can happen when they go in for a tumor test. But um, I don't think broad scale pretest genetic counseling before liquid biopsy or tumor testing is going to be tenable. I think we'll, we are very involved though. For example, we screen every single tumor test sent out on the GI patient at OSU um, using the ESMO guidelines 
to see if anything in the tumor looks like it could be germline and suggest a referral. So we're, you know, we can insert ourselves into these processes to make sure, you know, the worst case scenario is somebody does a tumor test, there's a BRCA2 mutation in the tumor, they give them some Lamparza and never refer them to genetics, right? Because that's a high likelihood it could be in the germline. And so we're screening all of those tumor test results. Um, and there's some nice ESMO guidelines that kind of have a list of genes and different uh, parameters that would warrant referral um, because, of course, things like TP53 are mutated in almost every t- tumor, but most people don't have Leifermini syndrome. So uh, for that, there's additional criteria, like the tumor has to be diagnosed under age 30, for example. Um, so we we use those guidelines and screen every single one of the tumor tests after the fact and let the oncologist know if the patient needs a referral to genetics. So that's how we are kind of adapting to tumor testing. I also, you know, because of the immunotherapy piece, a lot of non-Lynch syndrome tumors are getting screened for microsatellite instability, which is the characteristic that uh, works uh, for immunotherapy. And I think, you know, when that happens in a Lynch syndrome tumor patient, those docs are familiar enough with Lynch syndrome that they know they need to make the referral. But what happens when a lung cancer patient has microsatellite instability? Again, I think the oncologist is excited. They can use immunotherapy for treatment. But do they think about the referral they need to make to cancer genetics because it's a high likelihood that that patient might have Lynch syndrome? So I think that's, you know, one of the things that we just have to work on and make sure um, that everybody's aware that there are potential germline implications from these tumor tests. Come the day, come the day that that result from the lab comes with a note saying this is likely indicative, right? Like that's, that's got to be that where would be we're a, headed. That would, be, that would be a great approach. And I think that was the recommendation of the ESMO guidelines. Um, the European Society for Medical Oncology was that if uh, a germline testing company uh, found one of these particular gene mutations where the likelihood of it being germline to somatic, they, they did a ratio, um, was high enough um, and the tumor was sort of an uh, associated tumor in some of the genes or under a certain age in other genes to make sure that there was a high enough yield, that there would be some indication on the report that the patient needs to be referred. That That's ideal. Absolutely. So I, I'm, we're, we're running, you know, towards the end of our time, but I really wanted to ask <laughs> you as a final question, if I'm a genetic counseling student and I'm not uh, today, um, I'm in, I'm in my first year and I'm thinking about a career in cancer counseling. How do you imagine that their career looks different than what's going on right now? Like where, where if you were to imagine it, I'm not going to say 25 years from now, because I just think that's crazy. That's just crazy pants, right? Like we have no idea. It's but so hard. five years from so now. Hard, yeah. Ten years from now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, this is hard and I will kind of tie this all back to the beginning too. But I would say, I do believe that the first thing we're going to see is um, an increase in the number of, um, certainly the academic uh, institutions first, the number of institutions doing what Memorial Sloan Kettering is doing. So tumor testing being offered to every single cancer patient with optional germline testing offered as well. 
And so you might work at an institution where every single cancer patient gets germline genetic testing by rule at the time of diagnosis, and you may counsel positives all week long, right? Because that's, that's who's going to need referred, the patients who test positive from a more universal testing approach for the cancer patients. I think this will probably happen. It's already happened, obviously, in New York. This will probably happen at um, major academic centers within the next five to 10 years. Um, and then, you know, as with everything, we'll eventually spread through community oncology centers, et cetera. But while I think that's a great move in the right direction, we started this call by saying that 90 to 95% of people with Lynch syndrome aren't aware of their diagnosis. That simply is actually not even going to be enough because that will only diagnose Lynch syndrome in the families of people getting cancer at those institutions once that starts. So I think we have to approach this every single way, right? The old-fashioned way of referring people who have a family history, uh, the idea of introducing some sort of population screening, perhaps even controversially into the newborn screening. Even if we started that today, that only gets people born in 2020 and beyond. We still have every single living human who has not been screened. <laughs> we are so behind the eight ball. <laughs> like we, Every single approach that we can do needs to be done. So and maybe what you're saying, what you're saying, if I understand correctly, <laughs> is that people need um, the traditional skills of genetic counseling, but also if you were working in cancer today, it would be helpful to sort of have a public health approach, to have public health skills and maybe interests. Yes, um, I agree, and I, I, I stumbled into that completely on accident. That was I, n never my intent, but I, I, it was funny. There was a public health genomics short course one year, and they had me speak, and I was like, oh, I guess I am doing public <laughs> health genomics. And, and the idea to me, and it comes back to this, it is, you know, if you um, counsel a person for smoking cessation and they quit smoking, you've stopped one person from smoking. If you change the law so that you can't buy cigarettes until you're 21 instead of 18, you've probably stopped a million people from smoking. This is exactly how we need to think about public health genetics. We, we, what we've done historically is helped one person, one family at a time. It's noble, but it's too slow. It's not enough. We have to think more broadly. And we have to get, get some type of population approach. And, and even if we did that today, the most crazy controversial one we've talked about in this hour, we start newborn screening tomorrow. We still have millions of people who were born before tomorrow who've not been screened. Right, like, right. We, we it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's going to take a long time till we get to a situation where even I could say, 50% of people with Lynch syndrome are aware of their diagnosis. Right. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, tr it even, truly, it truly would. Well, well right. that's a great job answering a tough question because it's always harder to look forward than look back. But you've been talking about this for 25 years. It's a little distressing to hear those numbers of 95% <laughs> remaining of, a, of, a, of the most of the, well, the most know, preventable serious <laughs> lethal disease that I know, right? I, so. I, I, I know, but I'm the eternal optimist. And I have to say 20 years ago, we didn't even know those numbers. 
Okay, right. So we didn't even know how. So I, I cheated. I have, I have one more question for you. I, I, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. I, I said I didn't, but I'm going to hold you on for one more question because I have a question. <laughs> so do you find now, because this would be a new thing, uh, is there increasing interest in families with Lynch syndrome in using pre-implantation technology to not pass that gene down? Yes, I'm finding that across the board. And I think one of the reasons is, um, you know, when I talk to our, um, uh, our reproductive people in town, it, it's not doubling the cost of IVF anymore like it used to. They do pre-implantation genetic testing on almost any in vitro case now to rule out aneuploidies, of course, and to have a higher chance of achieving pregnancy when they transfer the embryos. And so adding that single gene disorder is not doubling the price. I think it's much more, you also don't have to fly to a center of, believe it or not, uh, back in 95, that was my thesis topic at Sarah Lawrence. It was pre-implantation genetic diagnosis at the time. Now they call it testing instead. And, um, you know, it was really uh, super expensive, super hard to get and done basically at three centers in the United States that you would have to travel to and spend long periods of time for, you know, the retrieval and the transfer. And so it now that the patient stays in place and the embryos fly around to these centers of excellence, it's, it seems I, I have noticed many, many more of my patients, not just with Lynch syndrome, but with other uh, hereditary cancer syndromes that have been uh, utilizing this uh, this technology to avoid passing on a hereditary condition lately. But they wouldn't have, they wouldn't, I assume that almost nobody would have done this if it meant terminating a pregnancy. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that sense uh, with most of my cancer syndromes. I feel like a lot of them feel uh, that, you know, surveillance, offers a good opportunity to keep them from getting cancer. You know, it sort of depends on the condition. Lee-Fermini syndrome, I would say, is you know, much more severe. Younger cancer is harder to surveil for. So, you know, what someone finds, you know, unacceptable to pass on differs from person to person and depending on the syndrome. But, yeah, I don't think I, we rarely... I can't even think of anyone who goes the old-fashioned route of prenatal diagnosis and termination, uh, but many people would consider pre-implantation genetic testing. Well, Heather Hempel, I have learned a lot this morning, so thank you very much. So fun talking to you. Yeah, we apparently this... could do five hours of podcast. I think it would. I think it would be uh, <laughs> quite easy. So uh, you know, we'll just we'll just have to do it again. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you to anybody who's listening. Please uh, go to the website, subscribe, follow me on Twitter. Peace. Stay healthy out there, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.